0: I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to episode 28. Today's episode is all about Lake Shawnee Amusement Park, which is located just outside of Princeton, West Virginia. You may be familiar with Lake Shawnee. The amusement park has quite the history and has been featured on several different paranormal TV shows. It was featured on Scariest Places on Earth, Most Terrifying Places in America, and and Most Terrifying Places in the World on the Travel Channel. It was also featured on the Unexplained on the History Channel, and most recently in 2021, it was on an episode of Portals to Hell. The property has quite an extensive and tragic history, so let's get started at the very beginning, or close to the beginning. In 1774, a man by the name of Mitchell Clay acquired land in an area known as Cloverbottom along the Bluestone River and just upstream from the Bluestone Settlement. Back then it would have been Virginia, but it becomes West Virginia. Mitchell Clay was a veteran of the Battle of Point Pleasant and the Revolutionary War. The Battle of Point Pleasant might seem slightly familiar, and that's because it was the battle that took place in the same town as Mothman was sighted. That was episode one, and that included a little snippet near the end about relations with the Native Americans in the area. So check that out if you're interested in hearing about that. So the land was granted to Mitchell Clay by Lord Dunmore as a thank you for his participation in the Battle of Point Pleasant. Sometimes the Battle of Point Pleasant also is called the uh, Lord Dunmore's War. Mitchell moved the entire Clay family to the property in 1775, which was a year after he acquired it. In 1778, Native Americans wiped out the Bluestone Settlement on their way to attack settlers on the New River. The Native Americans did not bother the Clay family at that time. It was thought that this was because they didn't see or pass the property as they made their way to the Bluestone Settlement and or they were unaware that anyone had even settled on the property at all. The property was between 800 and 1,200 acres, so it was a rather large piece of land. And the Clay family had a large household. Now, I've seen some differing numbers regarding how many children they have. So most of the sites said they had 14, but I found a couple more. In the household, you had Mitchell Clay Sr. and his wife, Phoebe Belcher Clay. Then they had the children, and I'm going to list them in order by name as they were listed on the genealogy site that I found the information on. They had David, Tabitha, Rebecca, Bartley, Ezekiel, Obedience, Mitchell Jr., John, Mary, Naomi, who went by Nanny, Charles, Patience, William, Henry, Sarah, who went by Sally, And Polly. So that's 16 kids in all. And like I said, some sites say they had 14 kids. Hard to say exactly which one is accurate. It's not unusual to find discrepancies in genealogies regarding that information. So in 1781, probably around the end of August to mid September, sometime in that time frame, a neighbor named James Moore and Mitchell Clay Sr. went to purchase salt in preparation for the fall hunt and food preservation. Mitchell left his sons to look after the family and to fence the wheat stack so that the livestock could be turned out in the field. David, the oldest son, had left home at that point, so he was not living on the property. Sons Charles and Mitchell Jr. decided to go out hunting because they hadn't seen any signs of Native Americans in the area, so they figured it was safe enough for them to go do that. And that left Bartley and Ezekiel, who were older, to fence in the wheat stack. Mom Phoebe sent Tabitha to the river to wash clothes with some of the bigger children while Rebecca was in the house doing indoor chores. Obedience, the younger sister, was in the yard watching the smaller kids and helping her mother. Unfortunately, the Clay family was unaware that the Native Americans were watching the house from the ridge across the river and had been for several days. Native Americans were reportedly in two separate parties looking for horses to steal. One party was on the Guyandotte River and the other in Abs Valley. By watching the activities of the Clay family, they were able to know if their presence had been detected or not since people from Guyandotte or Abs Valley would need to pass by the Clay settlement on their way to get help. The party from Abs Valley had apparently been unsuccessful in their quest for horses and they ended up camping across the river from the Clay House, completely unseen because of the heavily wooded area. The Native Americans had watched M- Mitchell Clay and John Moore leave and also saw the two brothers leave as well to go hunting and they decided to go take scalps or captives of Bartley and Ezekiel who were busy fencing off the wheat. They had not seen Tabitha and the younger children at the river. So they, they cross, they shoot Bartley dead. Tabitha hears the shot and starts running with the children towards the house. Native Americans had surrounded Ezekiel and saw Tabitha and the children. Two natives attempted to capture Tabitha, while others tried to capture the children. Tabitha fought off the natives while the children were climbing the hill to the house. Unknown to the Native Americans, a Mr. Blankenship was on his way back to the New River from visiting another remote settlement and stopped at the Clay House. He was in the yard talking to Phoebe, who, of course, sees what's going on and begs him to shoot... The Indian who's fighting with Tabitha Blankenship would not shoot because he might hit Tabitha And if he managed to kill one native, he would not be able to save her from the second And then at that point his gun would be empty and it would be completely useless for defending the house He managed to hold the Shawnee at bay with his loaded gun until Phoebe and obedience got all the children safely into the house The Shawnee killed Bartley and Tabitha, taking their scalps and captured Ezekiel and retreated to the riverbank. There were 11 Native Americans in the party that killed the Clay children. And as I mentioned, they were Shawnee Indians, which if you haven't guessed, that's why it's called Lake Shawnee. So Phoebe, the mother, went to the neighboring house of James Bailey on the other side of Black Oak Mountain, which is six miles away. So that was their nearest neighbor. He was six miles away on the other side of the mountain. And she went there with her children. were still living. Blankenship presumably went to the settlement to organize a posse. The Clays made it to James Bailey's house and Bailey went to head to the settlement unsure if Blankenship would be able to make it there. He arrived shortly before daybreak to find the pursuit party had been formed and were waiting for the captain of the militia shortly after the party headed out looking for the Native Americans. In the meantime, Mitchell Clay Sr. and James Moore arrived at the Clay house to find the two bodies of Tabitha and Bartley and the rest of the family gone. So Mitchell and James Moore place the bodies in the house, and while they're doing that, Charles and Mitchell Jr. also arrive back at the house. The four of them set out for the settlement, thinking the entire family has been taken captive. Mitchell meets up with the pursuit party and learns the rest of his family was safe. And he and the party took off after the Native Americans, where they eventually found them and killed several of them. They took strips of skin from the backs of the Native Americans that they would later use as razor straps. And they passed these pieces of leather down through the generations of the Clay family. Mitchell Sr., James Bailey, Phoebe's nephew, and James Moore went out to try to negotiate for the return of Ezekiel, who had been taken to Ohio but they ended up finding Ezekiel dead. The Native Americans had tortured him and then burned him at the stake. Mitchell was allowed to take Ezekiel's body back to the homestead where he buried him and the other two children. Ezekiel was only 16 years old at the time of his death. Phoebe refused to go back to the homestead which is completely understandable. I wouldn't want to go back to the homestead either. So the family ended up moving to New River and eventually to Parisburg, Virginia. Some of the family did stay back on the property. There are some differing accounts of this story. Some say that Blankenship didn't actually defend the house, but instead ran off to the settlement immediately. He and his family were actually branded as cowards, and it was a designation that plagued generations of the Blankenship family. They also say that Tabitha was trying to defend her brother Bartley's body to prevent it from being scalped, and in doing so, she was cut to pieces by one of the Native Americans. The graves of Tabitha and Bartley are marked by a stone monument on the property. It's presumed Ezekiel's body is there as well. The graves of Tabitha and Bartley are actually still there on the property that is part of the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. So the property saw quite a bit of carnage in the 1700s. We're going to fast forward now. In 1926, the property is purchased by Conley or C.T. Snydo. The population of the West Virginia coalfields was booming at that time, and Snydow knew the families were in need of entertainment. He wanted to build an amusement park or resort for the families of coal workers in the area. Some question why the park was built in such a middle-of-nowhere sort of place but back then the coal towns were booming and the property was located at the intersection of two main highways, so it was easy to get to. The park was named Lake Shawnee Amusement Park, and it had a Ferris wheel, a swing ride, racetrack, dance hall, a saloon that was apparently complete with prostitutes and illegal gambling, according to lore, concession stands, and a lake when it opened. In 1927, a large cement pond was added for swimming and was said to be West Virginia's largest concrete pool. During Prohibition, a speakeasy operated there. We talked briefly about speakeasies in episode 26, the Haunted Baltimore Bars, if you're interested. By the 1950s, the Lake Shawnee brochure read, On this tract of more than a 1,000 acres is located a lake for boating, a pool for swimming, and a beach for sunning. Surrounding the lake are 18 cabins and cottages, picnic grounds, a bathhouse for a swimming pool, eating and dancing facilities, a golf driving range, a shooting gallery, and miles of hiking trails. You could even rent wool bathing suits for 15 cents when it opened. It said that during its tenure... There were a total of six deaths at the park itself, but not all six deaths can be documented. There were other deaths that were associated with the park as well that happened outside of the park, but were associated with the park either because of proximity of when they happened or because of who it was associated with. One of those happened in April of 1927. C.T. Snydell's three-year-old daughter, Eloise, died tragically at the hotel where the family was living. The newspaper account reads, and this is directly from the 1927 news article, Shortly after 11 o'clock, Eloise was romping about the hotel lobby and ran to get on the elevator. On the lift were Myrtle Brown, guest of the hotel, and Leroy Nance, Negro porter, but it is not known which one had hands on the control of the elevator. As it was about a foot from the landing, the little girl is said to have grasped it with both arms and hung on, being carried up to be crushed between the wall and the elevator before it could be stopped. The porter grabbed Eloise to pull her onto the elevator, but was too late to avoid the tragedy. It said her body was terribly crushed and she lived for 10 minutes after being taken to the hospital. Her father was at Lake Shawnee overseeing construction at the time of the accident. In 1932, 70-year-old William Porter was fatally struck on the road that ran alongside Lake Shawnee. He died. 1934 there was a murder that happened right next to the property of the park. A gentleman by the name of James Craft Belcher was 25 years old, and he is the grandson of former owners of the property. He is also a relative of the original family. If you'll remember, Mitchell Clay Sr.'s wife's name was Phoebe Belcher Clay. So Belcher was her maiden name, and this James Craft Belcher would have been a relative of hers. The... Grandparents of James Belcher owned the Lake Shawnee property in the early 1900s, and he would have spent time on the property. James was having a pretty rough go of it. His wife had left him, and he had started drinking heavily. He was seeing a 19 year old woman named Myrtle Taylor. Some information says he was seeing her before he and his wife split up, and that this Myrtle Taylor was the reason why his wife had left in the first place. Either way, he starts drinking heavily. On May 11, 1934, he finds Myrtle out on a date with another man. He ends up forcing her to leave and then forces her into his car. On the road next to Lake Shawnee, he gets out of the car, gets her out of the car, pulls out a gun, and shoots Myrtle twice in the head. But she actually did not die right away. And he ended up putting her back in the car and driving her to the hospital where she did later die. Then in 1935, on the same road near Lake Shawnee, nine-year-old Matt Calfee was hit in the head and killed with a piece of steel that was sticking out of the rear end of a truck. The driver was arrested after the police found blood and hair on the steel rod that was still hanging off the back. Witnesses said the truck was driving two feet off the highway onto the shoulder. On July 3rd, 1940, a 12-year-old girl was found drowned in the Bluestone River. She had been playing in the river on June 29th with friends when she disappeared. Her body was found on July 3rd right near Lake Shawnee. Just so you know, the Bluestone River actually travels right through the property, so she would have been found on the actual property. There. were were also a couple of car accidents on the road that bordered the park property. These other car accidents were non-fatal, but they were pretty serious ones. In 1961, we have the first, first death of somebody in the park. Now this one I was not able to find any documentation for other than people sharing the information verbally through oral tradition. So 1961 wasn't really that long ago. Six-year-old Wayne Harmon is at the park swimming with his family. There are other people there swimming as well and there were lifeguards on duty. Despite this, No one noticed that the six-year-old was missing or had drowned until someone bumped against his body near the bottom of the pool. Lifeguards attempted to revive him, but it was too late. So this was one of the first deaths on the property, or one of the first that has any kind of background. In 1966, there was a 10-year-old little girl in a pink ruffled dress that was enjoying the park with her parents. She patiently waited in line for the swing ride. This was a ride that had individual swings suspended on chains that traveled in a circular motion at a fast speed. If you've gone to any carnival or large amusement park like Bush Gardens, they all have these kind of rides. I would imagine these are more like the ones you would find at the carnival. So she finally gets her turn on the swings. She's enjoying the ride. Wind's blowing her hair. She's laughing, I'm sure. At the same time, there is a truck delivering soda to a nearby concession stand. The truck begins attempting to turn around to leave when it backs into the path of the swings. The truck backs into the path of her swing and she hits the truck. The girl dies riding the swings in her pink ruffled dress. It was said to have been a bloody scene with her dress and the swings covered in blood. I can't even imagine how horrific that would be to witness that. For a child to witness it, for her parents to witness it, but she would have hit the side of that truck at a pretty good clip. I just, I can't even... I don't even want to even imagine. Now, there is no record that I was able to find. You know, I always look in the newspapers.com to see if I can find anything to back up information that I've gotten. There's no record of this event in the newspapers that I could find. This is really not unusual because not all newspaper editions are available. Next year, I could search again and, and actually find documentation of it. But there is enough mention of this event to make me think that this is something that actually happened. Again in 1966, there's another death. July 3rd, an 11-year-old boy named John Talley was swimming at the lake with his family. His parents returned home and thought John had returned home ahead of them, but when they reached their house, John wasn't there. They returned to the park to search for him. His body was recovered from the pool later that night. He had become stuck on the drain and drowned. So either his clothing got stuck in the drain or his arm got stuck in the drain. Either way, he was held under by the drain and drowned. John Talley's death was the only death within the park that I was able to find any kind of record of in the newspapers there was mentioned that there was a drowning in the lake itself, though no one was allowed to swim on the lake. There was no record of the drowning at all, though it's possible someone could have fallen out of or flipped one of the canoes and drowned. It's also possible that somebody could have gone swimming in the lake even though they weren't supposed to. I do not have any other specific information about the other supposed deaths in the park other than mention that one girl was known to have slipped and fallen off the swings, which isn't a stretch to believe because the swing are basically wooden boards hung by chains. It is a pretty primitive swing ride. We're talking the 1920s. 1926 was when the property was purchased. The park opened in 1927. We're not talking about a ride made in 2000. We're talking about something that was made almost 100 years ago. I mean, it's 2021. In six more years, it would be 100 years since this park opened. The other death that is attributed to the park was a man who was gambling in the saloon, and he was killed over money. Again, there's no information to offer any validity to this story either, but it wouldn't be a huge stretch of the imagination to think that Back in the day, somebody would have gotten killed over gambling debt. So C.T. Snydell closed the park in 1966 after John Talley's drowning death and had the pool filled with sand. I was able to find some information that said the park was officially closed in 1967. Most of the stories say he shut it down after the death of John Talley in 66, but there was information that the county health department closed the park due to code violations in July of 1967. They closed all swimming and recreational activities until the park could comply with state health regulations ordered by West Virginia Department of Health. The order called for the cleanup of the swimming pool and installation of filters, and general cleaning of debris. The park was at that point abandoned. I don't really know what the discrepancy is between the dates. I'm thinking he probably closed the park in 66, didn't do anything after that, and the health department is saying, look, we're shutting this down officially because you're not doing anything and the park is disgusting looking, I guess. But Basically, he had abandoned it. He said enough was enough. If anybody can understand what it means to lose a child, it's him because of the death of his three year old daughter, Eloise. So at this point, we have the death of the Clay children who were buried on the property. We have the death of a few people who died right near the property. Uh, right along the property, and we have the supposed death of six people on the actual amusement park property itself. So in 1976, I was able to find information on a proposal that had been made to turn the property into a Boy Scout camp that focused on archaeology and that would include a nine-hole golf course with a motel in another area at a cost of $1.2 million, which today would be worth $5.8 million dollars, so you really gotta love inflation. In the paperwork for the West Virginia Antiquities Commission Historic Properties Inventory, it mentions that there is a log cabin on the property that was built by one of the surviving daughters of Mitchell Clay. It also mentions that the Shawnee maintained a lookout on a cliff on the property and is visible from the Lake Shawnee grounds. There are also several caves in the side of the hill thought to be rock shelters that the Native Americans occupied at some point. It talks about a Shawnee settlement that was presumed to be on the property. It says that one of the fields produced large amounts of Native American artifacts and still sometimes a number of surface artifacts were recovered possible burial areas were also mentioned. So we have the violent death of two kids and the abduction of a third, as far as the Clay family, and the third was later burned at the stake and buried on the property. We have several deaths on or adjacent to the property, and now there's a little bit of a mention of potential Native American burials, just to bring you up to speed. By the way, the Boy Scout camp never happened. And I find that rather disappointing because if there was a Boy Scout camp that was located on an extremely haunted piece of land within driving distance of where I am currently located, I would be all over that as an idea of a place to take the Boy Scout troop that I am a leader for. Because, hey, who doesn't want to go to a haunted location when they're camping with the Boy Scouts? And in case you're wondering, yes, we have camped at Gettysburg, and yes, when we camped at Gettysburg, I did take ghost hunting equipment with me. So anyway, 1985, the former Lake Shawnee Amusement Park employee, Gaylord White Sr., purchases the property and he has plans to restore the property and open the park back up. By this time, all the rides had been sold off, but the White family wanted to make sure they had at least a Ferris wheel and a swing ride to try to bring back the same experience from when the park was originally opened. They purchased a Ferris wheel and they were able to find a swing ride in New Jersey at an antiquities dealer. They went to check it out, purchased it, brought it back to West Virginia. So Gaylord White Senior was curious about the history of the swing ride that they had purchased. So he looked up the ride's serial number and he discovers that it's the exact same swing ride that had been in the park. And by the exact same ride, I don't just mean the exact same type of ride, I mean it was the same swing ride that was in the park, the one the little girl supposedly was killed on. In addition to the Ferris wheel and the swing ride, the Whites also added some smaller kiddie rides and paddle boats, and they were able to open the park in 1987. It actually did quite well, it was very popular. But unfortunately, the rising cost of insurance for an amusement park forced them to close. They continued to use the property. It had several bodies of water, so they opened it up for fishing tournaments and used the property for some other events. Because they had purchased it, they weren't going to turn around and sell it. They were just going to do what they could with the property. In the 1990s, the Whites began developing an area of the property for mud bogging. And while they were digging in the area... They began finding Native American artifacts like arrowheads, pottery, and pots. Dun, dun, dun. This is where I say, a little foreshadowing. Guess what else they're going to find? They're finding these Native American artifacts. They have a team of anthropologists from Marshall University and Concord College come to check things out. They end up spending, and by they I mean the anthropologists, end up spending several years on the property uncovering artifacts and graves. There are a couple different of numbers that I have seen, but it seems as though 20 or 22 graves were found, and of that number, 13 bodies were children. The people at Marshall University say there is an estimated 3,000 graves on the property. 3,000, that's the number three with three zeros behind it. That's a lot of graves, 3,000. There was speculation from the experts that an illness similar to the flu, went through the Native Americans, and to save the tribe, they left the elderly and children behind. Most of the graves that they were finding were children's graves, and elderly people, and it it seemed like that's whatever this illness was. It kind of started wiping everybody out. They also determined that the Native Americans were living on the land centuries before the first settlers came to the area. Most likely sometime in the 1400s, there was an actual Native American settlement. At some point, they stopped using the property as a living area, but continued to use it as a burial area. So, To recap, to recap the body count, we have the deaths of the three clay children by the hands of the Shawnee, the deaths of the people in or around the park, and now we have possibly 3,000 Native American bodies buried on the property. In case you're wondering, the property is haunted. I know this is probably a huge shock, especially because why else would I be talking about this place It's a paranormal podcast. We're going to talk about the paranormal. It's really haunted. Many people report experiences involving apparitions of spirits of Native Americans. Not surprising since the property is covered with thousands of Native American graves. People often hear the sound of drums and others have reported the sound of what they say is similar to chanting. Full-bodied apparitions of Native Americans are seen on the property as well. I imagine they're pretty unhappy with the use of the land for an amusement park. Jewel White, the wife of Gaylord White Sr., still lives on the property today. She claims to have seen the full-bodied apparition of what she called a Native American warrior. She said she knew it was a warrior because it was shirtless and carrying some type of weapon in its hand. There are reports of people seeing rides moving on their own. The cars on the Ferris wheel rock and move and make noises as if someone is sitting in them. And perhaps someone is since there are those who have also seen what looks like a man sitting in the cars. People have seen the silhouette of a man sitting on the Ferris wheel in the nine o'clock position. So if you're looking at the Ferris wheel, he would be in the car that would be located roughly where nine o'clock is located on a, on a clock or a watch. Legend has it that a man died after falling out of the Ferris wheel, but there's no information to back that up whatsoever. And it could be something that somebody has made up to fit the fact that they're seeing a person on the Ferris wheel. So this could be, it's kind of like a chicken and the egg type thing. What came first? Somebody died on the ride and their ghost is there or they somebody sees a ghost and they're making up the fact that somebody died on the ride. It's one of those. Jewel White. Also talked about how she was unsure if her husband would be happy with what she and her son were doing with the property. So Gaylord White Sr. and his son Gaylord White Jr. had passed away and Jewel White and her other son Chris owned the property and they were doing different type of historical and paranormal type tours, and she really didn't know if her husband would be okay with that. Then one night, the surveillance camera at the Ferris wheel recorded the safety lock on one of the cars opening and closing. Gaylord Sr. apparently was obsessed with the safety of the rides and the Ferris wheel in particular, and Jewel believes this was his spirit giving her a sign that he was okay with what was going on in the park. There is apparently some, the actual footage is available online possibly. I'm going to check that out and see if I can share that on social media. There are many people who have claimed to have seen the apparition of the little girl who was killed on the swings. She's often seen walking around the park grounds in her pink ruffled dress and some say the dress is covered in blood. They've also experienced seeing the swing move and even though there is no wind or any other explanation for the movement. It sways and sometimes shakes violently. There are also strange temperature anomalies recorded at the same time. There's a story about Gaylord White Sr. and a tractor. Gaylord would go out on the tractor to cut the large fields of grass on the property. Each time he would be out mowing, he would feel a weight on his shoulders and something touching his arm. Every now and then, he would see the apparition of a little girl out of the corner of his eye, but she would quickly disappear. Finally, one day when he's out mowing, the familiar sensation of someone touching his arms and putting weight on his shoulders was felt again, but this time he turned around to see what it was and he ended up coming face to face with the ghost of the little girl killed on the swings. She was dressed in her pink ruffled dress. Gaylord said to the ghost girl, if you like this tractor so much, I'm going to give it to you. He turned the tractor off, got off, and walked away, leaving the tractor sitting in the field. And the tractor is still out there in the field today. He apparently put a large boulder in front of it and something beside it to make sure that nobody would move the tractor. Gaylord Jr. saw the ghost of the little girl on the park grounds as well. She was wearing her blood-soaked dress and stood there staring at him until she finally just walked away and vanished. Gaylord White Jr. died at the age of 51 from a heart attack. He had a total of 26 heart attacks while living on the property and his family believes it was the property that caused the heart attacks. When the Discovery Channel was on the property filming, one of their investigators became trapped in one of the old ticket booths. They panicked to the point of needing to go to the hospital once they were able to get free. When they were stuck in there, they were yelling and yelling for help but couldn't get out. The door was a push door and it had no locking mechanism on it, but she was pushing and pushing, but the door wouldn't budge at all. And she panicked and was so anxious that they were concerned and ended up taking her to the hospital. Another paranormal investigator went into the ticket booth only to come flying out of it as if someone had had given him a huge shove out the door, and this was witnessed by Chris White, who he and his mom currently own the property. Uh, While filming for America's Scariest Places on Earth, the psychic that was with the crew refused to enter the park at night because of the amount of energy they were being bombarded with. Many people have feelings of being watched while they're on the property and of being followed as they walk around. Chris White's son has experienced this. He said he sometimes feels watched and has some someone unseen following him. When he walks, he can hear footsteps in the grass. And when he stops walking, he can hear like two steps immediately afterwards. Like whoever's following him takes two extra steps after... He stops walking. He also had an experience where he felt something grab his arms and hold them to his sides. He didn't feel threatened. He said he felt like whatever it was was trying to protect him from something evil. Children's laughter is heard, and full bodied apparitions of children are seen throughout the park. Some people have even experienced the smell of con- concession stand food, even though there aren't any concessions on the property. It's interesting to note uh, a little bit of tidbit of information. The sense of smell, or the olfactory sense as it's called, is actually one of the most commonly reported ghost experiences, with seeing a full bodied apparition being the least common. Some people say that because of where your olfactory sense or your sense of smell is located in your brain, that it triggers memories very fast. Like if you smell something, it will immediately take you to a memory. And that possibly that has something to do with it. I don't know. The White family who lives on the property still, as I said, Jewel White still lives there. They've experienced poltergeist-like activities such as doors opening and closing, lights and TVs turning on by themselves, sometimes in the middle of the night. Jewel White says that she has objects go missing in her home, and she made a point of saying that, of course, she misplaces things. She forgets where she puts her keys, you know, sets something down, days later has forgotten where she's put it. But she says she's missing things that she has put down. She's just set it down. She leaves the room, turns around and walks back in the room, and the item is gone. So we're not talking about something she's misplaced days later. We're talking moments. It's there, it was there, it's not there anymore. There was a historian who had done research on some of the drownings on the property, and when she was a child, she actually visited the park when it was still open. She said that when she was about the age of five, she was at the park swimming in the pool with her family when something unseen grabbed her leg and pulled her under. Her father had to grab her by the hair and drag her out, and if not for her father, she would have drowned. Looking back now, she wonders if something pulled those other kids under the water too. That is creepy. That is creepy as you know what, because I don't know about you, I love the beach, I love the ocean, I swim in it, I swim in the Chesapeake Bay, I swim in the rivers that are tributaries to the bay. When I was younger, I never had any issues whatsoever. The only thing I worried about was getting stung by jellyfish. Today, i <laughs> I guess because I'm older and more knowledgeable, and my sense of imagination is even worse. I think about sharks, I think about stingrays, I think about weird jellyfish that have traveled across oceans to attack me that could be under the water, all kinds of things that I can't see that could hurt me in the water. So the thought of something unseen grabbing me and pulling me under is absolutely terrifying. And the thought that there could be something in that swimming pool that was purposefully grabbing children and pulling them under to kill them on purpose is something else I don't even want to think of. And I'm probably going to have nightmares. It's just creepy. I don't know if I'll ever go swimming in a public pool. So in addition to all those hauntings, people have also been shoved. They've heard someone whispering in their ear and they've heard music coming from the rides and voices having conversations. Each year, the White family hosts what they call the Dark Carnival that allows people to take tours of the property in the hopes they might encounter one of these spirits. Unfortunately, the Dark Carnival was canceled again this year because of, you guessed it, COVID. Talk about something scary. We're really getting sick of the COVID crap. I totally want to go to the Dark Carnival. They also have some other activities. They, they've they had other tours there, historical tours, ghost tours. They have the Dark Carnival every year in the fall, except for the years where there's a pandemic. There's also a paranormal investigative group that hosts overnights there on the property where you can camp. I am totally going to attend one of these whenever I am able to to go. So once they start opening these up, I am so there because I definitely want to hit this place. It's in my top 10. This place and Waverly Hills are probably my top two places that I want to visit. So that's going to do it for this episode. As always, you can find Lurk wherever you listen to your favorite podcast or at lurkpodcast.com. On the website, you can find episodes and links to our social media pages. We have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and we suggest you like or follow one or all of these to be able to see any photos associated with the episodes. We also have a private Facebook group, and we would love for you to join in the discussion. And of course, we have merch. You can find that at LurkPodcastMerch.com. If you happen to have purchased a t-shirt or hoodie, send us a photo. We'll be happy to share it on our social media. And as always, until next time, keep lurking.